Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Guardian. Welcome to Politics Weekly Extra. I'm Jonathan Friedland. The date on the calendar is looming where Joe Biden will mark his 100th day in office, that moment when interim verdicts are passed on how a president is doing. So far, the reviews for Joe Biden have been pretty good, and one of the big reasons for that is that he has had a successful run at filling his cabinet. Pretty well, all of his choices have got through. You would be amazed how many presidents have stumbled and fallen at that first hurdle. Back in the early 1990s, Bill Clinton, for example, got into all kinds of trouble, picking people who had to withdraw because of revelations, other people were defeated. It can be tricky. I wanted very much to speak to somebody I knew well back then covering the Clinton presidency, and that is Paul Begala. He was a crucial advisor to Clinton during the 1992 campaign that got Clinton elected president. It meant that he had been in the room when that candidate and incoming president had to start picking the people who would sit around the cabinet table with him. And so Paul Begala, who has continued to observe politics really closely, author of a book last year called, rather appropriately, You're Fired, The Perfect Guide, to beating Donald Trump, Paul Begala is in an unusually good position to talk about the process of picking a team and particularly to give me his views of how Joe Biden has done it. So my first question when catching up with Paul Begala was to say, back when he was involved in the Clinton effort, what is the process like? Today I am proud to present to you and to the American people a cabinet of talented diverse and seasoned leaders. You were involved, Paul Begala, with that Clinton campaign in that banner year of 1992. Uh, And obviously, when Bill Clinton arrived into the White House in January 1993, he made a very big noise with the uh, cabinet appointments and saying he wanted a cabinet that looked like America. There was a lot of attention. But I want you, as somebody who was in the room in that Clinton campaign, to tell us Something of what it's like, the process of a new or incoming president picking a team. And I'm one thing I'm particularly interested in is how early it begins. In other words, are there late nights on the campaign bus when you and the candidate are going through, you know, the backwoods of Georgia and beginning to muse on who you would pick if you win? In Clinton's case, no. 
he did have, and they all do now, a transition team that begins early. And in his case, it was his just departed closest friend, Vernon Jordan, mm. who was heading that up. And if it were if it were to come up, if you were to say, gee, I bet Sally would be a great attorney general, he would cut you off. And was part of that superstition, the idea that if we start measuring the drapes in the Oval Office, it's bad luck? Yes. And also that you do have your hands full with a campaign. I think Biden's had a much better transition than Clinton did, tell you the truth, and even better than Obama, whose transition was, was uh, I think, very impressive. One of the things with Clinton, he was the first Democrat in 12 years, and the only other Democrat was Jimmy Carter, widely perceived to have been a failure. And so we didn't want a lot of Carter people. We had some. Tony Lake was the national security advisor, had been very close to Carter. Uh, Warren Christopher, Secretary of State, had been an aide to Carter. But in the main, Clinton didn't want to put experienced people in. <laughs> it sounds odd, but his only experience any Democrat had would have been Lyndon Johnson, which would was quite a long time before, or, or Jimmy Carter. So Clinton was much more tabula rasa. Biden has, I think, done a terrific job of mixing in new blood with veterans of Obama and a few a few Clinton retreads. But uh, I just think he's done a terrific job of that. Just in principle, explain to us what you think the case for diverse appointments is. Well, my right-wing friends never understand this. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a white guy, and uh, 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 they think that white guys like me who are for diversity are motivated from some sort of liberal guilt, white self-loathing. I have none of that. And Joe Biden has none of that. It's a pretty simple and I think elemental proposition. And that is when you expand the talent pool, you get more talent. Clinton understood that when, when our country had systematically excluded women, systematically excluded black people, systematically excluded Latinos and Asian Americans, that we restricted our talent pool from which we could draw. And now there was one very specific one. Clinton insisted on a woman attorney general. I am proud to announce today that I intend to nominate Janet Reno, the state attorney for Miami and Dade County, Florida, to be our next attorney general. She is a frontline crime fighter. Why that post? Not sure. I remember saying to him, the job description for attorney general is your closest friend who has a law license because it's so very powerful. Uh, but he picked a total stranger in Janet Reno, and she served eight years with great distinction. Although it has to be said, it was his third choice, wasn't it? That was a terribly blighted role. It was. Each time he came up with a nominee, some for some reason, scandal or whatever, it, 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 it got thwarted. You worry a lot. And he did stumble. Uh, he, he started with uh, uh, Zoe Baird, who uh, was very able, would have been a fine attorney general. She had some controversy with a nanny that I think had, was not documented or something. Then he switched to Kimba Wood, who's a distinguished federal judge, still is. She would have been remarkable. She had some slightly lesser nanny problem. So he, he settled on Janet, who he had never met. Fortunately, had no children, so didn't have to worry about a nanny. But it did seem when he picked his cabinet that there were limits on diversity in the sense that the three really big jobs, Secretary of State, the Pentagon Defence and the Treasury did all go to very establishment white men. They did. I do think justice is a fourth, the big four, I think, are the four most important and only one. Now that seems like a poor record for right. diversity. But it seems like nothing now. But we were, in the, we were coming out of a mild recession. Again, Democrats did not have credibility on the economy. And so he really needed and wanted... Uh, stability and uh, credibility with the markets. And he couldn't have done better than Lloyd Benson. 
so I think in those jobs, he was looking for credibility. And the same thing with, with the Defense Department. Clinton had famously never served. He had defeated a war hero, George Bush. So he really, I think, was hungry to have stability and credibility in the traditional sense there. This is a cabinet that I promised you, and I've fulfilled that promise, that looks like America. It taps into the full range of talent we have in our nation, and we have immense talent. It's a historic cabinet. Very different now. Let's talk talk through some of these appointments that Joe Biden has made. Talk us through what difference you think it makes to the actual quality of government that, for example, Joe Biden has appointed in Lloyd Austin, an African-American to run mm-hmm. the Defence Department, or in Janet Yellen, a woman to run the Treasury. In both cases, I think historic firsts. What extra does it bring to the quality of governance, do you think? I think a lot. Now, again, years ago, we didn't have a pipeline that would groom people. You know, Lloyd Austin is fully qualified, highly decorated, four-star general, and African-American. So you have to begin with qualifications, and General Austin has them. It is certainly, I think, a great plus. Uh, Same thing with Janet. She's richly experienced. She was maybe the most powerful woman on the American economy in history. She was the chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors in the Clinton White House, then the chairwoman of the Fed uh, under Obama, and now the Secretary of the Treasury. Vast experience in policymaking and before that in academia. And I think that you know America's two-thirds of our economy is consumer-driven. Most of those consumer uh, purchases are much more influenced by women than men. And so I think she's got, uh, in addition to these gold-plated credentials, a lived experience that gives her an advantage. So this quality of empathy perhaps animates some of the other choices. And I just would be very interested to hear what you say about Deb Haaland as the first Native American cabinet secretary in American history at, at, at the Department of Interior. The president-elect's goals, driven by justice and empowering communities who have shouldered the burdens of environmental negligence. Or Miguel Cardona uh, of Puerto Rican heritage at Education Like uh, other cabinet nominees and appointees, he's brilliant, he's qualified, and he's tested. And he's going to join the Biden-Harris cabinet, uh, and it's going to be a historic cabinet. And one I think that really is very uh, eye-catching, even from all this distance away, thousands of miles away, Alejandro Mayorkas, himself an immigrant or even refugee at running Department of Homeland Security. My father and mother brought me to this country to escape communism. They cherished our democracy and were intensely proud to become United States citizens, as was I. It sounds as if this empathy for understanding the the position of those people who are served by those departments uh, is the key quality. I think so. Who are served by those departments, who fund those departments. So you look at Secretary Holland at Interior, the Interior Department has a long and tragic history of abusing uh, First Americans, they still have enormous influence over tribal nations and tribal communities. And uh, Secretary Holland, I think very interestingly, one of the key votes to confirm her came from a Republican, the senator from Alaska, Lisa Murkowski. Now, Alaska has more of its landmass controlled by Interior than any other state, and it has a large community of First Alaskans. Those native Alaskans usually overwhelmingly vote Democratic. 
Last election, they supported Murkowski strongly. And I think in the best sense of the word, she was paying back their political loyalty. Even though she disagrees with Holland, of course, on a lot of these uh, energy issues and where to drill in Alaska, but she cast a vote for the first Native American Secretary of the Interior. And I think in some large measure, because she is Native American, even though she's much more liberal than Murkowski, I think that was a very smart move by Senator Murkowski. You make it very difficult for a Democrat to run against her. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it makes sense. I mean, you said earlier that Joe Biden's transition has gone more smoothly than the Clinton one you were around then, or even than the Biden, uh, the Obama one, in which Joe Biden was there as uh, as vice president. Part of the measure of that is this success in getting your choices mm -hmm. through. That's always seen as an important measure. They have gone through very smoothly, with one exception. Uh, we have breaking news coming out of the White House right now. And the president's embattled nominee to lead the Office of Management and Budget. Let's go to our senior... And that was his choice to run the uh, OMB, the Office of the Management of the Budget. He chose a woman called Neera Tanden. She was garnered so much opposition that I think in the end withdrew her nomination. One New York Times commentator suggested this was in some ways deliberate. He called it the Neera Tandon gambit in the sense of throwing up one candidate, one nominee who attracts all the opposition, becomes a lightning rod. And then meanwhile, below radar, when no one's looking, you can get all your other nominees through. <laughs> now, we are, is, that, is that overthinking it? Is that giving too much credit? Or was there a Neera Tandon gambit that paid off brilliantly? No, my sense, and, and I, I'm in reasonably close touch with the Biden White House. They really wanted Neera to run the budget office. Uh, she is greatly experienced. Uh, again, a fascinating lived experience. She would be a very high-ranking government official whose family had been on relief as a child. They had terrible setbacks when she was a little girl, and her parents got food stamps. Now she would be helping to put together the budget. I, I know that the president wanted her. Uh, I think it was lamentable. Uh, particularly her her sin was nothing about her performance or qualifications or ethics or conflicts. It was only that she had mean tweeted a lot. And not only had she mean tweeted to a lot of powerful Republicans like John Cornyn, senator from Texas, who really took umbrage, she had also mean tweeted a lot at Bernie Sanders, the independent socialist, uh, democratic socialist from Vermont. Now, Bernie never opposed her. He's the chairman of the budget committee, but he never endorsed her either. He just right. let it let it ride. Uh, so I think Nira kind of got caught in a pincer move. But as opposed to, you know, Obama had a secretary a, a nominee for Health and Human Services, again, the second largest domestic agency, who blew up, and you may recall, it was Tom Daschle, who had been the Senate Majority Leader. With Clinton, we stumbled terribly at the Justice Department. Very important. And it's not that the Office of Management budget is not important, but for a guy who only has 50 votes in the Senate to confirm every single cabinet officer is really remarkable. The big four, I believe he really chose subject matter experts. In addition to the diversity that General Austin and, and Secretary Yellen bring in. But if you look at Lloyd Austin, he's a career army guy. If you look at Janet, she's a career economic official. If you look at Tony Blinken, he's a career national security foreign policy guy. Uh, if, if you look at Merrick Garland, he's a career prosecutor, then a federal judge who should be on the Supreme Court. None of these women and men are political hacks, right? And, and I'm, I'm a hack. I mean, in a nice way. Um, <laughs> But then there's a whole nother cadre of governors and a, and a very famous mayor and Congress members who have 
great political experience. And that matters to me as a political person because these jobs, yes, they're substantive, but they're also political. So when you have a popular governor, former governor of a swing state like Michigan, Jennifer Granholm goes to the energy department. Marsha Fudge is beloved in the house. She was a congresswoman from Ohio. Now she's running HUD. HUD being housing and urban development. Sorry, yes, housing and urban development. De- Deb Holland was in the, the, the house and very popular. Javier Bracero was in the house and then was attorney general. Then Marty Walsh at labor and Pete Buttigieg at transportation are the mayors. But that's a lot of political savvy. And a president needs that. I, I do remember Clinton leaning very heavily on politicians in his cabinet. You need that too as a president. And so I think this is a really interesting mix of the subject matter expertise in the big four, diversity throughout, but then a lot of practical governors and mayors and Congress members. It's really fascinating, that blend of policy and politics. Really interesting. Uh, and some really good, you know, interesting political judgments of taking one of the people he ran against or who ran against him in the primaries, Pete Buttigieg, and just making sure he's in there, not with an absolute big four job, but at transportation, just clocking that and making sure that base is covered. Uh, I have to say, Jonathan, that one made me nervous. Why? I love, I still call Mayor Pete. I love Mayor Pete. I admire him. I think he'd have been a fine president. I'd have been proud to vote for him against Donald Trump. And he has real experience as a mayor, but he doesn't know the Hill. And Joe Biden's infrastructure bill is his climate bill. It's his jobs bill. It's his racial justice bill. This is really going to uh, stretch both Biden himself and Pete Buttigieg to build majority support for this law. Uh, That is one, and I'm not criticizing him. He's a fine guy, but that is one place where I expected uh, a beloved senator or congressman or congresswoman to take that job to make it easier to pass this program to the Hill. Because I think that the one train that's for sure leaving the station is that infrastructure bill. I'm not sure Biden will get another important legislation, uh, legislative vehicle through. It's the largest American jobs investment since World War II. It will create millions of jobs, good paying jobs, will grow the economy, make us more... So while it's not the big four traditionally, Below them, it's probably the most important job. And the job is not just uh, making sure that the shovel-ready projects get executed. It's getting this bill through the Congress. And I, I suspect what Biden figured was he's got 36 years in the Senate. He's got a vice president who was in the Senate. They can work that end of it and let Pete do uh, the policy side. That's what I wondered about, whether in a way this astonishing strike rate that you referred to of getting through every single one of his cabinet-level appointments through – owed itself to the fact that Biden himself has so much senatorial experience on the clock. He's such a veteran of that institution that in a way he has just himself uh, many of the kind of advantages you would normally or assets you'd normally be looking for in your appointees. And therefore, is that the reason, A, why he got through so many of his appointments, but B, why he feels comfortable having a relative novice uh, like Pete uh, Buttigieg there. And is that telling us something about how Biden aims to govern, that he is going to be his own liaison with Capitol Hill? Yes. I, I think, uh, you know, every president has to fly at his own altitude. And I think uh, President Obama, who passed the most important domestic law of my adult lifetime, the Affordable Care Act, uh, there was a criticism of him on the Hill. There was, that he flew too high, that he didn't engage enough, he didn't schmooze enough. Well, okay. He still, I think, did a fine job. Uh, Clinton had never served on the Hill, but he loved it. He'd have him over for dinner. He'd take him bowling. He would, you know, he loved it. 
And uh, some people said oh, he was too in the weeds. I, I think Biden is much more in the Clinton mode with the advantage of knowing these people for decades. You wrote recently about that diversity isn't just about race and gender and geography region of the country, but also diversity of thought. And you invoked the famous team of rivals that Abraham Lincoln constructed in his cabinet, where he had people who really were from all sides of the argument around the table. When you look at the uh, Biden cabinet table, yes, there's diversity in all the conventional ways, but is there that diversity of thought there and I'm particularly thinking if you are on the left of the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. you are a progressive who voted for Bernie Sanders, who has you know AOC's voice as your ringtone on your phone. Have <laughs> you got enough in Biden's cabinet when you look around and there isn't a Secretary Elizabeth Warren or a Secretary Bernie Sanders? Right, I, I think probably not, but you take comfort in the agenda. I think what Biden has figured is that his mannerisms. And I think his staffing choices are comforting to moderates. And I say that as a moderate. And his agenda is electrifying to progressives. Bill Clinton's stimulus bill was $16 billion. (laughs) Joe Joe Biden's was $1,900 billion. (laughs) Uh, Even Obama, who was a great progressive, never came close to the sort of agenda that Joe is putting forward. So, And yet he's doing it in such a um, moderate manner always talking up bipartisanship, always seeking uh, to reach out. So I think that's his sweet spot. But you're right. I think a lot of liberals and progressives were disappointed. Uh, Now, some of this is the mechanics, I think, of the Senate. If you lose Elizabeth Warren from the Senate, there's a Republican governor who may very well take that seat. Uh, Not only, I'm not sure the mechanics of appointments there, but it doesn't matter. The election, Charlie Baker, the governor of Massachusetts is a a good Republican and a beloved governor in a democratic state. And we saw this movie when Senator Kennedy died at the beginning of the Obama administration. Thank you very, very much. Wow, what a great reception. What a great crowd. And I bet they can hear this cheering all the way in Washington, D.C. I was going to say the election of Scott Brown must haunt oh. Joe Biden and other and Senate Democrats because they know a vacancy comes up in Massachusetts. It is not a slam dunk that you get that you get that seat or hold it. It's like the kids' game of Jenga. When you pull that block out, does the whole building collapse? And you don't want to gain. She, I think Elizabeth Warren would be a terrific cabinet officer, but she we can't risk losing that seat. But not the same in Vermont with Bernie Sanders, surely. Correct. In fact, there's a Republican governor there, but he had said, I'll appoint a Democrat. I think he was uh, helping, uh, trying to help Bernie. Um, uh, Bernie seemed to have wanted labor. I haven't talked to him about it, but he seemed to want labor uh, where he'd been fine. But gosh, he's the chairman of the budget committee. He's absolutely powerful. And he's worked a long time to get there. The other missing piece though, Jonathan, is Republicans. Yes. You know, Barack Obama did have, I think, much greater diversity of thought in his cabinet. He did. I mean- He had a Republican defense secretary, just as yes. uh, Bill Clinton did in his second term. Right. And and uh, uh, Hillary Clinton, while they wound up being very close, uh, she was much more hawkish at state than I think Obama was in his own inclinations. I, I do wish there were room for a Republican there. Um, it may just be that we're so very, very polarized that it, he, for all I know, he may have reached out to some Republicans. And whereas it used to be not a career ender <laughs> to be a Republican and join a Democratic administration, uh, 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 President Bush had Norm Mineta 
a Democratic congressman who had been Clinton's transportation secretary, he asked Norm to stay. And it didn't hurt Norm with the Democrats. Nobody thought Norm was a sellout. They thought it was good that he was serving his country under a Republican president. But that that may be it. I actually had a, a mischievous uh, uh, idea, which went nowhere. It shows you that the Biden people are smarter than I am. But there's a Congress, a senator named Jerry Moran from Kansas. He's the chairman of the Veterans Committee. And he is very moderate for his party and very much in favor of the VA. He doesn't want to privatize the Veterans Administration healthcare system. I thought he would make a fine Veterans Affairs Secretary because he has the subject matter expertise. He's beloved in the Senate. It helps that you get a Republican. But Jonathan, and this is where I was being too cute by half, his governor is a Democrat. So <laughs> we would have picked up a Senate seat from Kansas. But uh, I have to say that went nowhere. Uh, and and the, <laughs> the man who's there, Dennis McDonough, uh, is a foreign policy expert, beloved by the veterans community, had been uh, a national security advisor and then chief of staff for Barack Obama. So they, they did well. But in a way, it goes to your point about the emollience of Joe Biden. And because he is an arm around the shoulder guy who can talk about bipartisanship and people believe it, in a funny way, that means you don't then have to actually do it by appointing a Republican. And it was more a partisan figure like a Bill Clinton or an Obama who had to actually prove their bipartisan credentials by reaching across the aisle to appoint a Republican. Maybe Biden just doesn't need to do that. That's very insightful. I hadn't thought of that, Jonathan, but I think you're right. I think it's well. Very- let, let, with that compliment ringing warmly in my ears, let me ask you about people like you, Paul, and and that is advisors, people who are not cabinet secretaries, but are advisors to uh, the president and the and that sort of inner circle. Um, in the end, with Biden, when you look at the people who are advising him, there are they really the people who Biden will turn to uh, for, you know, that advice at 11 o'clock at night, it's going to be them rather than those formally appointed cabinet secretaries. And if that is the case, that it's that they're the people who are the inner circle, who's there that we should really know about that really matters? The first among equals, of course, is his chief of staff. That's his longtime advisor, Ron Klain. He will become White House chief of staff. Klain was the former vice president's number one aide at the start of the Obama administration. Ron is absolutely brilliant. And Ron is so close to, to the president. That matters enormously. You know, maybe because Biden's been doing this so long. I know this. The first place he turns, of course, is to his wife, the first lady. His sister, Valerie, is very close and has always managed all of his campaigns as a senator. But then you get to Ron and the staff. Uh, Susan Rice is running domestic policy. She and Biden became very close in the, in the Obama White House. And then two guys who you never see in the paper, Steve Reschetti and Mike Donilon, who have both been with Biden forever. Then this younger crowd of communications professionals, Jen Psaki, his press secretary, uh, Kate Bedingfield, his communications director. He's got a younger generation, which makes me feel good because it should be a younger person's job, frankly, to work in the White House. But those younger people that he's, I can see he's positioning them to, to move up. Yeah, I mean, it reflects very well on him, uh, you know, to have just in any institution, a boss who's 78 years old, but is nevertheless able to spot new and young talent. But I think what you say confirms my instinct, which is that they're the people he will talk to with a political issue rather than, you know, formally convening the cabinet to ask. I I think so. We'll we'll have to see. Clinton hated to meet with the whole cabinet. He liked task forces, right? De facto, he'd get four or five cabinet members together. Uh, There's another I left out a big mistake, who I would really watch, Cedric Richmond. He was a congressman from Louisiana and an early endorser of Biden's and became a very close advisor in the campaign. When Cedric was named, and it's not confirmed by the Senate, he's a senior White House aide, some on the left complained 
Oh, he's from Louisiana. He'd taken campaign contributions from oil and gas industries. Well, yeah, no kidding. It's the dominant industry in the state. He has a very good record as a congressman on environmental issues. Uh, but th the fact that uh, Biden has brought someone who has not been in his inner circle for 30 years into such a high perch, I think is a very good sign. Paul Begala, it's been a complete pleasure chatting with you today. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Jonathan, thank you so much. And that is all from me for this week. Next week, Joe Biden will finally reach his 100th day in office, a landmark moment for any president. Did he achieve all of the goals he set out for himself when he was campaigning to win the presidency? Can he call his first 100 days a success or even a historic triumph? I'll be asking Robert Reich those very questions. So do tune in for that. And I must recommend the Today in Focus edition on the fallout of the triple guilty verdict against the former Minneapolis policeman Derek Chauvin, finding him responsible for the death of George Floyd. We, of course, here on Politics Weekly Extra, will be looking at the political implications and next steps from that terrible case. And of course, I can't sign off without urging you to listen back to the UK politics podcast, where my colleague Heather Stewart brings us all the latest. I will say goodbye myself for now. The producer is Danielle Stevens. I'm Jonathan Friedland. Please take care of yourself. And thanks, as always, for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. 